This is Living Faith, the podcast ministry of First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. We are located at 100 North Lake Avenue. Our Sunday morning services start at 1045 a.m. Sunday school is at 930 a.m. You can find out more information about First Baptist Church at fbcap.net. You're listening to our current Sunday morning series, Who Are We? copy of scripture, the Bible, to the New Testament book of Titus, Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking this morning at Titus chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. We are been in a, a long series of, of who are we, looking at the dynamics of who we are as a church and looking at it from a very broad perspective. Uh, the first part of that series dealt with the idea that uh, who we are as a church, our beliefs, our, our theological passions and understandings. And we talked a lot about what it meant to be a Baptist church. Now, you know, I'm kind of partial. I am Baptist. I tell people that. Uh, John the Baptist, so to speak. But I do believe that there are a lot of people who are going to be in heaven that are not part of a Southern Baptist church. Amen. But at the same time, I do think it's very important that we do understand who we are, what we believe. Uh, I know there are many reasons that we might be attracted to a church or to a, a fellowship or a congregation. And, and uh, I know that we come from very many different backgrounds and different types of church life. But I do think it is crucial that we are, if we are part of a church that we do know doctrinally where that church stands. Regardless of where that church is, I think we need to understand what it is they believe and don't just take for granted because church is written on a sign that it truly is a biblical, evangelical, kingdom-focused church. And so we spend a lot of time on that. If you have questions or are curious about that, I do believe that most of all of our sermons are kind of archived on our, our website, which does come in handy when you're not able to be here and you're curious of what we have been preaching on. Last week and this week, uh, last week was part one, this week is part 1B. We're looking at the life of a leader in a local church. So first, uh, Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, here's something I want us to think about. How crucial is leadership? Now think about the election. Some of us, I've heard people say, I'm trying not to think about the election. Well, that's probably not the best attitude to take. But think about the election. That You'd be surprised a number of people that came to me very sincerely, uh, just dialoguing, maybe because I'm a pastor. They, they were curious. And, and I'd hear something like this. I don't know who to vote for. And most people would say something like this. This is beyond party. I mean, this has nothing to do with whether or not I'm a Democrat or Republican as much as it is leadership, character, leading our country. You know, who, who do I see leading my country? And, and we, we, you know, we hear and we saw that, you know, it, it, it's kind of the idea, well, I didn't really see a great choice, but here's the thing to think about it. Those were the choices. Now, if we have a problem with the two candidates and their leadership and, and their morals and their non-moral, you know, then we have to remember we as a people selected those two to be it. That says a lot about us. Leadership is crucial. I believe that each and every one of us are called to be leaders. 
We're going to look explicitly and directly in the life of a pastor and an elder and a leader of a church, but I don't want this to be a message about, well, this is what a pastor and an elder and a bishop and overseer looks like, and everybody else just kind of checks out. I want us to look at this text and realize this. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And we follow Christ as our head. And there are shepherds and elders and pastors and overseers and bishops that God has placed in his local congregations to lead the church. And so it's a a trickle-down effect. As we follow Jesus Christ, we are all called to lead. And there are expectations of the life of a leader, a life of someone that wants to make a difference, a life of someone that wants to invest their life in someone else. To me, that is a leader. A leader is someone more important than influence than anything else. I guess as a pastor, if I were to to be before the Lord, one of the things I'd like to know as I stood before the Lord was not how big our budget was or how many sat in the pew or how big our church was. I guess I would hope I'd want to stand before the Lord and be able to ask this question, was I able to influence lives as I followed you? To me, that's a leader. So I'm going to ask you this. Are you making a difference where you live, where you work, Are you making a difference in your network of friends? Are you a person of influence? Do you have an influence in people's life that you are sharing the gospel with them? And in your presence, people are more encouraged about Christ than apart from your presence? That's a leader. And I believe that there are things that must be in the life of a leader if we are truly going to be that person of influence and to make that difference. Titus 1, verse 4. Now, the text is dealing explicitly with elders. The life of a pastor, an elder, a bishop, an overseer. Last week, all these words mean the same. I do appreciate so much when I know you've listened on Sunday morning. Several people referred to me as Bishop Beck last Sunday night at the meal. So that means you do listen. I did say it has a nice ring to it, but I don't want to be Bishop Beck. I'd rather just be pastor. All these are the same person that the Lord is asking to lead the church. To Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete so that you may, you might put what remained in order. So there was a need there for the church to have purpose, for the church to have direction. Every organization needs a leader. Every group of people needs a leader that you might appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. Verses 6 through 9, notice the qualifications. We didn't necessarily look at this text last week. We looked at the text and then looked at the life of a pastor. But notice the qualifications. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to charge of debauchery and insubordination. For an overseer, same thing as an elder, pastor, bishop, as God's stewards must be, must be, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who 
who contradict it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and the challenge before me as a pastor, as an elder, as the overseer, the bishop, the one that you have called to lead your church. Lord, I'm humbled by the the great need in my life to be the man that I need to be. And Lord, I just pray that my heart and my mind would be open to what it is you are calling me to be as a leader. But I would also ask, Lord God, this morning that you would open up all of our hearts as men and women and boys and girls and that we would see that we are called to follow you and to make a difference and to live out the gospel in this world and that there is a life of a leader. Let us see that and embrace that this morning. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Titus 1, 4 through 9, the life of a leader. The first thing we need to see and understand if we're going to be a person of leadership, a person of influence, a purpose that makes a difference, is that we have to understand there's a calling. If you notice in there, look at verse 4. To Titus, my true child, in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. If we think about a calling, it is more than just a calling to salvation. If you look up, if you just read the scripture and you just read it open-minded, and, and sometimes I use the word logically, if you just read the Bible logically, it just makes so much sense. You don't have to understand Greek. You don't have to be a, a theologian of, of depth, of seminary trained to just logically understand that a call to salvation is a call to serve. A call to salvation is a call to live our life in such a way that as we follow Christ, we are sharing the gospel and we are living out the gospel of Jesus Christ that anyone that is born again is a call to go and make disciples. Every one of us are called to be leaders. I look at our lives. Isn't it funny as we look around? I'm not going to call names out because we could all do it. But it need just just look around and write people's names down and, and think about our gifts and our uniqueness. I was talking to some of our worship folks this morning and I I I, I kind of apologize. I always like to throw the apology out first if I know that maybe I, I did something they're not really, really excited about. I plan where I'm going to preach usually for weeks ahead, as far as big picture, big picture. But it becomes little picture probably late Friday afternoon. Well, that's not fair to someone that has a personality that details need to be in the inbox before late Friday afternoon. And so it's like, I think I'm, I'm going to be preaching in Titus 1 on Sunday, and I'm planning and playing through that. Then Friday night to be able to say, okay, here's what it's going to look like. Could you imagine leading worship in a church where the pastor does that on Friday afternoon? But isn't it amazing how God puts people with different gifts and quirks and personalities and can use them for his glory? 
I've often said that the most influential people that probably are going to be in the most influential person in line heaven, in heaven, there is a line like that, I think. They're not going to be preachers of pulpits and grand churches. I, I don't think that Spurgeon's going to be in the front of the line of the most influential Christians that have ever lived. Now, we could say that he could have had the most influence of anyone that ever lived because of the number of people, because of his giftedness that he impacted with the gospel. But, you know, there might be a, a Sunday school teacher in front of that line that was not gifted to speak publicly, but there was a calling on their life to invest their life in children. And for year after year after year, they taught Sunday school and they prayed for those kids and they did whatever they could do to make a difference in their life. Yes, Charles Spurgeon was a, a great influential leader, but how many other folks do we not ever heard of that are great influential leaders? We are all called to make a difference. If you think about our calling, I, I think you can look at it in three ways. I think there's a calling that we're saved, that we respond to the word of the Lord, and there's that a, initial understanding that I have been forgiven of my sin, and I was dead, but now I'm alive, and it's a, a complete U-turn of life. I'm heading in this direction, and I, I heard the call of the Lord, and I responded, and now I'm going in a completely different direction. There's a, a calling to be alive in Christ, a new creation in Christ. But notice that Paul said to Tim, uh, Titus, a common faith. There's also a calling that we are growing in our relationship with Christ. That is one of the things that drives me insane and crazy about Christianity in America. It's like joining a club. You know, it's like, well, we, we, we went to church and I've done this and I've joined that church. And there's really nothing that, you know, in so many people's lives, you could see that person. And other than pulling out a card, we don't really, we don't normally give cards out. But, you know, it's like we could pull out a card and say, I am a Christian because I belong to this church. I really think that if you've really been born again, that people are going to know who you are because of the life you live. I also think that that calling to be saved is that calling to be growing. I think that we keep growing until the day the Lord takes us home. Now, when is that day going to happen? I have no idea. But I believe that we are called to grow daily in our relationship with Jesus Christ is a calling that each and every one of us must obey. Here's a great question, a couple of questions. Do you feel like you're a real leader and that God is using you to make a difference in your family, with your children, your grandchildren, your co-workers, your neighbors? Maybe you haven't really embraced your calling. Are you truly saved? Do you know that you're born again? You have no doubt in your mind that you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've repented of your sin. You've placed your faith in Christ. Maybe you're not growing. How many of us are guilty of that, that we've had seasons in our life where we would say, oh, I remember when I, I loved the Word and I loved prayer and I loved serving and I loved following Christ. I loved singing the, the hymns of the faith. I loved coming together at church. I loved giving. I loved doing all these things. But lately, what that means is we stop growing in our relationship with Christ. 
It's not a growing relationship with the church. It's not a growing relationship with your pastor. It's not a growing relationship with anything. It is a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And we think about who Christ is. He hasn't gone anywhere. He has never changed. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He loves us. He is there to guide us and lead us. And so there's a calling to continue to grow intimately with Christ. There's a calling there. There's a calling to salvation. There's a calling to growth. There's also a calling, I think, of investing. I think, and I don't know, I think there's a point in a time as a believer that we just have to figure this out. It is not about me. It's not about me anymore. As a believer, this is not about me. Me coming to church is no longer about me. It is about everyone else. My money is not about me. It is about everyone else. My prayer life is not about me. It is about everyone else. It is about everything that I do Jokingly, I had a, a, a deacon mishap over the weekend. We won't go into details. But a, a deacon told me, he said, ah, I thought I was going to have to call you. I had to go to the emergency room. Jokingly, I said, well, I hope it would have been after the game. That would have been kind of bad. Hey, I'm in the emergency room. Can you run down here? I love my pastor. I want to pray for me. I heard, are you? Oh, you're just waiting on a tetanus shot? Ah, see you in about an hour, all right? Hang in there. Jokingly, I say that. I would never have done that. It's not about football. It's always about you. But how many of us wage our activity on us rather than others? You think about this standpoint. If you were not here this morning and we could just pick you up and move you out of here, there's a hole there. Look at that person you're sitting next to. You wouldn't be next to that person worshiping. Think about Sunday school, our our small group ministry. Think about every time we're not there encouraging someone, spurring someone on. We're, we're listening to the word. We're praying for each other. It isn't about us. It isn't about us and how tired we are and we don't ever get any sleep and we're so busy during the rest of the week. that this, It's about everybody else. A leader understands it's not about everybody else. It's not about them. It's about everybody else. Paul was reminding Timothy, this is common faith, grace, and peace. Here's something bigger than, than you can see. It's just bigger than right before. Titus, this is, a, this is a call of our salvation and our growing. A leader, and leadership, leading's not for everybody, by the way. You notice that? My wife teaches at the high school. She's not the greatest evaluator of football talent, but she tries. I help Coach Jackson at the high school. One day, Sharon says, honey, there's a boy that wants to play football. I think he'd be good. I mean, it's the middle of the season, okay? We've already, we've already started. All the tough part's over with. 
Send them out. He got out there, and we had a drill, and helmets on, and shoulder pad, and it was just not really like an Oklahoma drill, but it was pretty close to Oklahoma. That means you just run wide open and hit everybody. It was a running drill. He was running another kid, and our kid, and our kid had been there all year, and this kid just got there, and it was supposed to, they were supposed to hit and proper technique for tackling. Son, he looked like a ninja jumping out of the way of that tackle. He put forth more effort to get away from making a tackle than he made a tackle. It's funny how that happened. The next week rolled around, he didn't feel good. Next week rolled around, he was hurt. Next week, he's gone. She's like, well, I'm surprised he didn't make it. I said, honey, football's not for everybody. Football's not for the passive and the lazy. Leadership is not for everybody. I think we're all gifted to do it, but we're not all willing to do it. To be a leader is to become selfless. We're confident of who we are. We're confident of the calling. We're confident in our growth, but we also understand this is bigger than us. And a life of leadership is understanding our calling is to invest in others. Fathers, husbands, you are called to lead your home. You know what that means? You are investing in your home. You're making decisions right now that are going to pay a dividend in the future. You're investing in those kids. The way you raise those kids now is a future investment. There's going to be a payday someday of the investment in your kids. To be a leader is to understand there's a calling. Titus understood that. There's a calling to grow. There's a calling to be saved. There's a calling to invest. Key thought as we move on. There's a calling from a biblical standpoint of where we are in this context. There's a calling to love Christ and to love his church. You know what is lacking in every church I've ever led? pastoring every church when I was with the North American Mission Board those 10 months as I've been in associational work if I've been in the state denomination everywhere I've been for the last 20 plus years in ministry there's number one request of every church of every pastor of everything number one bar none outpaces all of them we need leadership people to lead the church I've narrowed that down to two key components as we understand that and our calling. You're saved, you're growing, you're investing as you love Christ and you love his church. Do you love Christ this morning? Do you love your church? Do you love your church? I'm part of the church. Tonight, we're going to gather as the church. We're going to gather at Union Congregational at 4 o'clock right over there. Pray for your pastor. I'll be speaking with a 10-minute limit. Little do they know I'm not going to obey that. That is the church. That is the church. I love the church. But I love the church. I love this church. 
I love you. I love who we are. I love this building the church. I love the people of the church. I love the ministry of the church. You'd be surprised a number of pastors that don't love their church. You'd be surprised a number of church members that don't love their church. You'd be surprised at people that don't love their church. We must love the Lord and love his church and love one another. You know that the church down here has lost her influence. But the church of Jesus Christ will never lose her influence. There's a calling. Secondly, there's this leader and his character. Verses 6 and 8. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, now that word above reproach, It means blameless. There's a a difference between perfection and blameless. No one is ever going to be perfect. But blameless is you're trying to be. It's like raising a child. You know, a a small child, and you know, you know, you know, you know, you know. I always use an example. Five out of ten meals, I knew Bryce was going to spill his milk. It was just going to happen. He did not mean not to do it. Bless his heart, he still spills it. Now, he's just too old for sippy cups. There's a difference when you see a child cutting up and doing something. And then there's a difference, he's just going to do it. Nowhere does Scripture say that you have to be perfect, but Scripture is full of blamelessness. Blamelessness is the idea, I am trying to do what is right, I am moving forward, I've got a goal in mind, and I'm marching on to Zion, I am trying to do what the Lord wants me to do. The idea above reproach in the original language is really kind of neat. It's the idea, there's nothing to take hold of. Here's an example of a, of a New Testament leader right here. Paul tells Titus, these are the type of men that need to lead. There's nothing you can grab a hold of. You remember back in the day, I thought about football earlier. Remember back in the day, remember Earl Campbell? Can you see him running now in college and they had the tearaway jerseys? And you would try to tackle him and you would grab the cloth and it would just rip off. They don't have those anymore. This leader is coming by us and we're trying to find something on his life that's not right, but there's nothing there. He's above reproach. I was talking to a a church leader out in, in, in southern Florida at the convention and she told me where she was on staff. It was a uh, a lady and uh, two of her pastors, and we were having lunch, and we were talking about different things, and they told me where they were from. I went, I know, I know where that church is. And jokingly, I said, isn't that the church where the pastor lied on his resume? She went, yes, everybody brings that up. See, if you put something down on a resume and said that you obtained degrees here, here, and here, Mm, 20 years ago, you might could have gotten away with that. You, th- you think you're going to get away with anything today like that? So how do you think that local church failed about three weeks into this pastor's ministry that the local newspaper said, new pastor at influential church in our community doesn't have a degree, says he has. Puts you in a bad spot, doesn't it? You can take hold of that. Now, to pick on that pastor, I find it very hard to mistype three paragraphs. 
You either did or you didn't graduate there. It's not very difficult. Leaders are called to be above reproach. That's why I said not everybody's called to be a leader. Not everybody's called to be a person of influence. Not everybody's called to be a difference maker. Not everybody is called to be out front. Some people just like to follow in the back, blend in with everybody else. I don't want to be holy. I don't want to be set apart. I want to be at the high school and look just like everybody else. I want to Snapchat like everybody else. I want to tweet just like everybody else. I want to send pictures on the Internet and on the phone just like everybody else. I want to blend in. Then you'll have a leader. And they're out front. With the guidon of Christ in the gospel saying, I'm above reproach. I'm not going to do what everybody else does. I've only gotten in a couple of arguments where I knew I got in the flesh since I've been a pastor. One with a deacon, one with a fellow pastor. The deacon and I resolved it. We cried and prayed together and we're best buddies. He was wrong. I was wrong. The pastor, he's just wrong and he's probably out of ministry right now. Nowhere in Scripture does it say I can't drink in public. So I'm going to sit at Applebee's and I'm going to drink and drink and drink because I'm saved by grace. I said, you may be saved by grace, but you're an idiot. The other, true story. I was with another pastor and he was just wearing me out under the table. Bang, bang. I said, I don't care. I've got family members that struggle with alcohol, struggle with alcoholism. They're going to be sitting in a restaurant one day, and and that waitress is going to walk by, and he's going to see the beer and the liquor, and they're going to be struggling and knowing they don't need to do it. But they look across there, and there's a local pastor with the pitcher. That is not above reproach. That is not saying I'm not going to do anything to be a stumbling block from anybody else. This is about me and my freedom in Christ. It's all about me. That's not a leader. Above reproach. I know I'm not going to be perfect, but I pray that every day I get in my face before the Lord and His Word, and I pray, Lord, don't let anything be on me that somebody could take hold of to tear down your gospel. You may even have heard me say this in settings before. I will say something like this. I don't want to say this, or you know, I'll say something like this. If we do this, then I'm just going to have to repent later. The idea is your mind, you know what your mind wants to do something? Well, do something you're not supposed to do and you do it and you think, well, there, that feels better. You're going to have to repent later. So I don't want to do anything I'm going to have to repent of later. That means I need to slow down what I'm going to say and slow down what I'm going to do because if you're a child that's been blood-bought, redeemed child of God, you're going to be in prayer and you're going to be in the Word, you will repent of what you've done and you know you shouldn't have done it. Above reproach, two areas here. One, his family. He's above reproach, the husband of one wife. He's a faithful to his wife. Churches can have different understandings about divorce and remarriage. There are two reasons to have a 
biblical divorce. A divorce where you say, you know what, I've done everything I need to do. There's nothing I can do any different. Lord, I am trying. Lord, I am praying. Lord, there's two reasons that we can say biblically that there are reasons for a biblical divorce. One is the spouse is unfaithful. Matthew 19, just write that down. Matthew 19, 1 through 9. The, the, the spouse, I've had, I've had gentlemen that I went to seminary with, called to preach in seminary, wife leaves with another man. I believe biblically that man is free to remarry. His wife left him for, for immoral sexual reasons. He is free to remarry. We also see in Scripture the husband of one wife, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16, abandonment. The issue is probably not, the main issue is not whether or not someone has been divorced or not divorced because I do believe that marriage needs to be taken very seriously. Parents, that's why we just don't date. Oh, we're just going to date. Isn't it cute? I always think about it. I can say things now. My kids are out of the house. Here are all my children and the 42 people they've been to prom with. We just love social dating. What do you think they're doing, by the way? When that girl and that boy together and they're teenagers, what do you think they're doing? What do you think? I can tell you what he's thinking about doing. And you're putting them in a, in a situation emotionally they cannot handle. They're not ready for that type of emotion. They don't know what love is. They're in high school. Their brain's not fully developed till they're 20 anyway. And we're forcing them to do something they can never do. So we force that on them. You need to date. You need to date. Who are you dating? Who are you dating? This is cute. Date, date, date. Then they get married, and about three or four years into it, they think, well, I don't love this person anymore, and I don't love this person anymore. So we're just going to get divorced. Well, good job. We raised them right then. That's not biblical. What is biblical is, is a man and a woman come together different by design, praise the Lord. Learning to love each other, learning to overcome those differences and understanding we're in this forever. A leader, home needs to be right. He needs to be a faithful man to his wife. That wife needs to be a faithful man to that woman It needs to be a man and a woman above reproach, faithful. If you can't love your wife, you're never going to be a leader. If you can't love your husband unconditionally, you're never going to be a leader. Then it talks about his children. Now, Titus talks about children. Timothy doesn't talk about it quite as directly when they talk about it in, in the book of Timothy. Notice what Titus says. It's still the word of God. Amen. If someone wants to lead, their family needs to be in order. Wife, his children and believer are believers, not open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination. You want to check out your leadership? Look at your family. Now, here's the thing about being a parent. You never feel like you get it right. Isn't that true? 
Sharon and I talk about this often. We were first married. We were young, and I think my brain was almost fully developed then. Guys are a little bit slower than the girls. But we were sincere about being married. We were sincere about growing as a Christian. We were sincere about our church. We were clueless. So here we have three children, and the best of our ability, we're trying to do what we need to do, and by God's grace and mercy, we got through it, and we came through, and we think, okay. Now, granted, there's not a day goes by that I don't say, I wish I could have done something different. I wish I could have done something different. But the idea is the home is your most important place. Get that right. Do you know how many pastors at the end of the day have given up their family for ministry? i never forget a, a pastoral decision one time. Some people want their pastor in the hospital every time they go to the hospital. They could go get their blood level. They can go get their sugar check. They want their pastor there. Some people have quadruple bypass surgery. You don't know about it until after they're completely released from the doctor. But I had a lady one time that loved her pastor praying for her at a doctor's visit. Kids were little. We lived in Indiana. We didn't have a pot to pee in or when to throw it out of. I'd saved up money and the Braves were going to play the Cincinnati Reds in Cincinnati. We were It's birthday. I even told them, you all get your own drink. And I remember Brantley going, we all get our own cup? Yes. Fancy cup with a baseball on it. Everybody gets their own cup. We're probably going to share nachos. We get our own cup. We're going to see the Reds and the Braves. Yes. Phone rings. Brother Pastor, I'm going to be in the doctor tomorrow. It would mean so much for you to pray with me. I don't mind the youth guy, but he's just not the pastor. That was the longest pause. She's passed away now, so I can say her name. Miss Peggy, I'm going to the Reds and the Braves game tomorrow with my family. It's their birthday. Oh. Well, okay. Enjoy the game. Click. That's now we laugh, it's true. Did anybody ever think about the life of a pastor that way? 24 7, 365. Sometimes as a pastor, you just have to say, I'm called to lead a church, but I'm called to lead my home. You'd be surprised a number of pastor's kids have told me, love your family. Let your family see you're more important to them than some of the things that we do at the church. Men, I know that job is important. Ladies, I know your career is important. People, I know we've got a, a lot of things that are going on. There's nothing more important than your wife and your children. The Bible says to be a leader, we need to be above Reproach. Secondly, we have our family when we look at our character, but there's a list of things 
I thought about family, and I was trying to think of a way to convey character, but it was family, and I, I thought about this. We have our character, we have our family, we also have our fruits. I thought about that word fruits because our fruits are what we produce. It's just kind of naturally who we are. To be a person that's a leader, our fruit needs to be right. And I think fruits do one or two things because leadership is about people. I make that comment often about pastors say that I would love the ministry if it wasn't for people. That's a stupid statement. Ministry is people. Be like a teacher saying, I'd love teaching if it wasn't for students. I mean, it just doesn't work. I'd love to be president if I didn't have to fool with politics. People, ministry is people. Life is people. Christianity is people. Leadership is people. Leadership is about fellowship. If you want to lead, then you're going to ask people to, to follow. Leadership is about influence. Leadership is not demanded. There are certain things, uh, if the, if the a general, if I'm in the Marine Corps and a, a, an officer walks in, the base commander walks in, because of who that man is in uniform, I will come to my feet and stand at attention. The president walks in, we stand up. There are certain things that happen because we do, because of who they are. But leadership is not commanded. I don't stand in a pulpit and say, I am your senior pastor, you will follow me. If I do that or if I have to do that, I'm not a very good leader. Leadership is about fellowship. Effective leadership attracts fellowship. A godly leader dad, his role is not to make people happy all the time. Part of my goal of being a dad was not necessarily for my small children to like me. Let me finish that statement but my older children to respect me. My goal is not to make everybody happy. It's to lead everybody to be godly. Leaders do not have to enter a room and say, you will follow me. A leader enters a room and people naturally follow them. They're people of influence in a good way, not a manipulative way, not in a pragmatic way, in a natural way. That's why I like, I like the word fruits. I think our fruits do two things. When it comes to engaging with people, I always think about this one person in particular. I, I think she even actually had this conversation with Sharon in a previous ministry years ago. Well, nobody will be my friend, and nobody wants to hang out with me, and so we, we need to, you need to, you're the pastor's wife. Make people come to my Bible study. I want to do a Bible. Make people like me. That's a weird conversation. Okay, everybody. Announcement time. I know nobody likes this person, but would y'all like this person? I know nobody wants to be around them, but could you be around them? That's what that is. This person was just their fruits. Our lives ought to attract a company. We don't have to be the center of attention. But I think our lives, we ought to enjoy being around people. Fruits. There's two types of fruits. They're tear-down fruits and they're build-up fruits. There are things that just tear down relationships around us and there are things that build up 
relationships around us. There are things that will tear down a home, that will tear down a church, that will tear down the job, or there are things that are going to build it up, and there are things that are going to strengthen it. Notice the tear downs, arrogance. I don't care how much you know. Some of the smartest people in the world can tend to be the most arrogant, but we forget the most smartest people in the world are only smart because God allowed them to be. Isn't that true? You take pretty people. What do they do to be pretty? Nothing. Take Georgia fans. They're just smarter. Right? Anything we do well, odds are it's not because we did it. It, it, We're born with it and we work at it. I had a long talk on a bus back from a basketball game about this kid was telling me, you'll understand the context, I want to go to Duke. That's my dream. Being the reserved person I am, I said, you better have a backup dream. Coach, why would you say that? I said, because you're a junior in high school and Coach K does not even know your name. You're not going to Duke. But what if I want to bad enough? Doesn't matter about how bad you want to. What if it's a dream? It's a, it, well, it's a dream, but what's going to happen if that dream doesn't happen? I can have a dream to want to do something, but it may never happen. Instead of having a a dream to do something and a desire to do something, I think we just have to embrace who we are and how we created in Christ and invest in those gifts and just allow God to use us however he wants to use us. The goal is, what type of fruits? Am I tearing down? Am I arrogant? Am I quick-tempered? Am I a drunkard? Am I violent? Am I greedy for gain? Who wants to follow that? What child wants to mimic that in a parent? What employee wants to mimic that in a, in a, a boss? What player wants to mimic that in a coach? What? What? Nobody. That tears people down. We need to build up. Notice the list there. Hospitable. I love that word, hospitable. I will never be in the hospitality business because I don't know how to set the house up. But I love hanging out. Being hospitable is not having the best stuff around the house when you ask guests over. Being hospitable is just people like to be around you. Now, I know we gravitate towards certain people and different things. That's okay. That's, that, to me, is not clickish. I think sometimes we take that word click. And, well, there's clicks. Well, no, there's not clicks. It's just things you enjoy doing. We're going to gravitate toward things that we enjoy doing. We like talking to people the things that we enjoy doing. But hopefully the gospel is something we all enjoy and we can agree there. But are you hospitable? Do people want to be in your presence? Do people want to follow you? Do people want to hear what you have to say? Do you have to demand that they understand and listen? Or are you hospitable? Are you a lover of good? People know what you do. People see what you do. Self-control. Not reacting, but just living. Upright, holy, disciplined. These are the characteristics that build people up. These are the the characteristics that leaders have. They're hospitable, they're lover of good, they're self-controlled, they're upright, they're disciplined. What tears down is arrogance, being quick-tempered, a drunkard, a violent, a greedy for gain. 
My fruits and my attitude toward others is a direct reflection of my view of who I am in Christ as I follow his leadership and the leadership I possess for others. We don't have to be arrogant because I'm humble before the Lord. It's not a thing I have that I got on my own. He gave it to me. I don't have to be quick-tempered. I, I don't have to be defensive. I don't have to expect everybody to agree. I don't have to be that way. I don't have to be a drunkard. I don't have to be violent. I don't have to be greedy for vain because I am complete and one in Christ. And because I am one in Christ and I find my joy in Christ, I'm okay with everybody else. The way I treat others is a direct reflection of my daily walk with Jesus Christ every day. That's his character. And then we have his charge. And we'll close with this. The charge of a leader is to hold, trust, and to stand. Our charge is to lead by our life, by example. Notice what the text says. Hold firm. I, I love that, that clasping idea to hold it, to hold on to our calling, to hold on to our character, to hold on to who we are in Christ. We are so content and we are so satisfied with who we are in Christ and we're holding firm to that. I'm not counting on the world to approve me. I'm not counting on the world to like me. I'm not counting on anybody to do anything because I'm one and I'm complete and I'm holding firm to Christ to my calling. I think some of the greatest advice I'd ever gotten from pastors, and I still get it. You hold firm to that calling because one day you're going to stand before the Lord and you'll be accountable to Him. That's encouraging. We hold firm. Notice what it says, trustworthy. That trust is the idea that it takes faith to live out the Christian life. It takes faith to remember that he is God. It takes faith to remember what the gospel has done. It takes faith to remember who I am in Christ. It takes faith to remember all the promises of God's word. And at the end of the day, it's going to be all right because he's on his throne. I've got a mission. Hold firm to this trustworthy word and teach and rebuke. And our third word, stand. The military had such a great impact in my life. For those that don't know the story, I was a rebellious teenage knucklehead with an underdeveloped brain and went to the recruiting office as a joke and began the sign-up process as a joke. God said, this is going to be real funny. I was rebelling against the lordship of Christ in my life, so therefore I was rebelling against authority across the board. The military broke that. But it taught me a lot of things. One thing the military taught me was, this is what we do because this is what we do. If they tell Gomer Powell to move the sand bucket over there to sand pile over here, he just kept doing it. Wasn't it Sergeant Carter? Y'all don't know who I'm talking about, do you? Y'all do. Some of y'all do. Y'all don't. 
in a completely different way, this is where I stand. Sergeant comes into the room and says, this is what we're doing today. Why? Because there's an end in mind. Why do we train so much? Because we're at war. We're not at war. Every day you're in the military, we're at war, and we're training for war. Tomorrow's war. Today, and you did it, and you did it, and you did it. I stand on the Word of God. I'm not distracted by what's saying over here. I'm not distracted what's over there. I'm holding firm. I'm having my faith. I'm trusting in, in the gospel. I'm trusting, and I'm standing on the Word of God. And as a leader, I am going to teach the Word of God. Notice that word there. It says to teach, to instruct. It is a positive idea of teaching that which is right and encouraging those to believe it. Notice what it says, to teach, to give instruction. Thus saith the Lord. This is where we stand. Thus saith the Lord. This is right. This is true. I, I know what the world is saying. I know what everybody else is saying. But we have to stand on the word if we're going to be a true leader. And to rebuke. Believe this. Don't believe that. Believe this. Don't believe that. To rebuke is to speak against. Yes, we need to lovingly teach the word, but we need to be able to say, Thus saith the Lord, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong. It doesn't matter how popular it is. We have to stand on the word. I say this often. I feel like I say it too often. Truth does divide. Chew on that a little bit. We just need to be unified at all costs. Say that out loud. Truth does divide. Turn in that math paper with all those math problems wrong and see where that gets you. Wrong. Well, I believe this. Well, I believe that. Well, let's just all get along then. Truth does divide. I mean, Christ was nailed to the cross. The disciples were martyred because they stood on truth. Now, I'm not saying that we were arrogant. We're not arrogant, quint-tempered, violent, drunkard, or greedy for gain, speaking the truth. We're hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright. We're holy. We're disciplined. And we stand on the truth. There's a calling. There's a character. And there's a charge. There's our leader. And then there's God calling out leaders. Let's stand as we pray.